looking at the early years of David's life, and we're going to look at a particular moment that ended up changing not just his own life, but the entire course of history for Israel itself. We're going to look at that moment David became king. But um, before we do, perhaps somewhat as a review for those of us who have been journeying through this summer together, and others of us who may not have been, it'll be, hopefully it'll catch us up to speed. We have to understand where David has been in order to understand what we're going to share in here together. See, David David was visited. He was a young boy when we're introduced to him in the scriptures. Scholars believe he was between 15 to 17 years old when an elderly man of prominent leadership in the nation of Israel known as Samuel, a spokesman for God, stepped into his home, invited his father and his brothers to come so that he could select the next king. And upon recognizing that none of the sons that were there would be the next king, Samuel prodded his father, Jesse, to find out if there were any other sons, and the forgotten shepherd boy was summoned. And he was brought in front of his family, and in front of his family, Samuel ends up anointing him and speaking into his life and saying, listen, I set you apart because I'm telling you this, that God is saying you will be the next king of Israel which in itself must have rocked his world. It must have ignited something of joy and anticipation and something of a dream, perhaps, of what one day would be true, if it were to be true. And if that were the case, what ends up happening, we're told that perhaps a year or so later, he ends up stepping into what's national fame. On the other side of courageously facing giant of a man named Goliath. He ends up overcoming him, and he ends up doing this in his adolescent years. And Saul, who is the king of Israel at the time, ends up recognizing what an advantage he has in David. And so he drafts him into his own military, puts him in charge of a segment of his military, sends him on assignments. And we're told that each assignment David went into, he came back victorious. And he just kept winning. That's what we're told. He did not fail. Everywhere he went, he succeeded. And he succeeded, if we could put it this way, a little too much. Because it ended up causing the the king who was sitting there, Saul, to regard his highest asset as now his highest threat. He became jealous and insecure and ended up pursuing David and seeking to hunt him down like one would hunt an animal. David leaves the royal courts knowing he's no longer safe. And for the rest of Saul's days, David is on the run in his own land, not knowing if Saul would ever really truly overcome it, if this was his last day. And this occurred not for several weeks or months or years. This would occur for around 13 years. Just an amazing amount of time between the moment Samuel would be anointed to the moment Saul, Samuel would anoint David to the moment Saul would no longer be able to pursue David. Why? Because he was no longer alive. He would die on the battlefield. And at 30 years old, the word that Samuel had spoken over David would be confirmed. One of the tribes One of the tribes, at least in part, one of the tribes of Israel would end up asking David to become their king. And the tribe, his own tribe, was Judah. The rest of the tribes, the 11 other tribes, ended up asking one of Saul's sons to become their king, which means Judah seceded from the nation. This is all good for us to know, because it would be a number of years, seven to be exact, 
in which David would be the king of Judah, a segment of Israel, and the rest of the tribes of Israel would end up moving into a season of defeat and not very good governance. And their ineffective governance caused them to be persuaded by one of the commanders to say, you know what, why don't we ask David to be our king? And it would be, hear this, it would be around 20 years later that David would actually become the king of Israel. 20 years. Now, I don't know about you, but um, I certainly don't think David expected that, that degree of time to pass by. I mean, that, that in itself is a little, I, we get frustrated when packages don't arrive within two days. <laughs> right? Yes. Can you imagine? Then one year passes, then another, a decade almost two decades before this moment we're going to explore actually happens. It's an amazing account. We're going to take a look at this. If you open up your handout, we'll just look at First Chronicles, which is a historical narrative book. It's meant to kind of give us a broad stroke of the history of Israel. And this is what we're told in verse 1. Then all Israel gathered together to David, which is an idiom to say all the leaders of Israel gather together, representative body, gather together to David at Hebron and said, behold, we are your bone and flesh. We are family. We're connected. And then look at what they say. Look at how they ask him. In times past, even when Saul was king, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord your God said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over my people Israel. They are pointing something out about David from the very beginning that is important for us to recognize. You know what they're saying? They're saying, even though we had a king whose name was Saul, it was you who actually behaved like a king. And even though we had somebody sitting on the throne, we know he was ineffective because we know we look back on your track record and we see by your actions that actually it was you who protected and guided and went in and out among us. You were really the one behaving like a king. Now here's what this is saying. This is an incredible model we're given here from the very beginning. You know what this is saying about David? That David did not wait for the position of leadership to behave like a leader. He did not wait for all the pieces to line up before he would step into what he sensed within himself God was calling and depositing and leading him to behave into, to step into. David embraced what God was doing in his own life and he allowed time to tell whether or not this was actually something God was doing. You see it. You know, and it, it had its effect. Because what do they say? They say, listen, we now see, based on everything, we know, we heard the tales of Samuel visiting your house, and that was well and good. But we remember how you have behaved around us, and we now have come to believe with you exactly what this is saying, that the Lord your God said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel. We now believe that actually what you have sensed inside of your soul is true. God wants you to be our leader. It has been proven. And then the elders, verse 3, 
of Israel came to the king at Hebron and David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord and they anointed David king over Israel according to the word of the Lord by Samuel. This covenant that they made was an agreement, a commitment to each other, far more deeper than a contract or a signed document. It was a commitment stating that we are in this bound together. And then they ended up repeating the very act that Samuel did. He anointed him to pour oil over him, a symbolic gesture saying, you are now set apart, ordained by God, and may his presence be with you. What a moment that must have been for David. It's a moment, if we could hear it this way, that must have caused him to reflect and revert back to the days when he was a youth, the days when an elderly man, a sage of sorts, a historical figure, spoke words of life, spoke into his future and said, one day this will happen. Can you imagine what kind of emotion that must have set up within him? Can you imagine what kind of joy that must have filled his heart, the, a dream at last fulfilled. And as significant as it is, we might mistakenly think, boy, David has arrived. It's, he's good. We can now close the book happily ever after. And yet somebody last night, we were just talking. It was like, you know what? This moment, this moment, we're just discussing this ceremony that caused immense joy and celebration. It, it's not too different than a wedding ceremony. I said, well, tell me more. I, where are you going with this? He says, well, a couple, when they are serious together and they are in love, they are look forward to this day when they will get to spend the rest of their lives together and they make plans and they prepare and they, they invite guests and they put a bunch of resource and thoughts and creativity into celebration, celebrating the moment they will now be man and wife. And they might think they have arrived. And the next day they recognize they're just beginning. They're just beginning. It's just day one. And can you hear it? 20 years just to get to the starting line. A dream fulfilled. You know what David is now discovering in this moment? What he discovered? It's a principle that is not just true for David. It's true for any of us. When God is involved, delay is not denial. And when something within us that we believe God has spoken, has breathed, has moved, has ignited, has deposited, is not happening currently. If God is in it, delay is not denial. Which should be something of an encouragement to us. The dreams God never forgets about. The promises he keeps. Delay is not denial. And the very first thing David does is something rather significant. We may miss it. We may see it not that significant. But we'll just read the first action recorded in this account. We're told here in verse 4 that David and all Israel went to Jerusalem, that is Jebus. It wasn't known as Jerusalem. It was known as Jebus, where the Jebusites were, the inhabitants of the land. The inhabitants of Jebus said to David, you will not come in here. And the scriptures don't pause for effect. But we are meant to recognize something. Nobody before David successfully was able to secure the city God said, there my name will dwell. Nobody. They had it for a time, but it always eluded them because raiders would come in and reconquer the land. A wall of security was never established. 
until this time. We're told, nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. David said, whoever strikes the Jebusites first shall be chief commander. And Joab, the son of Zariah, went up first, and so he became chief. This is how he became the general of generals. And we're told David lived in the stronghold, therefore it was called the city of David. Why? Because when David lived there, can you hear it? Peace dwelt there. Peace was secured in this city for the first time in Israel's history. And the people who would write this many years later, who would recollect this, would recognize this is an enormous shift in Israel's history. He did more than that. We're told he built, in verse 8, he built the city all around from Milo in complete circuit, and Joab repaired the rest of the city. He brought wholeness to the city. He brought a sense of security and peace to it. And then we're told that David became greater and greater, for the Lord of hosts was with him. This is the idea. The idea is that David got to a place where he was able to do something that no one else prior to him was able to do. And just so we understand what the greater and greater might look like in a little bit more detail that the scriptures, they don't really highlight. I believe for a particular reason. We're going to find out in a little bit. But I discovered this historian, G. Frederick Owen, who kind of says in a more novel way what this meant for Israel. In that time, everything favored, he says, national prosperity for Israel. And there was no great power in Western Asia inclined to prevent her becoming a powerful monarchy. The Hittites, which is the people around there, surrounding them, had been humbled. And Egypt, under the last kings of the 21st dynasty, had lost her prestige and had all but collapsed. The Philistines, the people of Goliath, they were driven to a narrow portion of their old dominion, and the king of Tyre sought friendly alliance with David. David's, the Israel's enemies, now sought to become their allies. Such was their strength. Commercial highways were thrown open, and in came merchandise, culture, and wealth from the surrounding nations of Phoenicia, Damascus, Assyria, Arabia, and Egypt, and more distant lands. To his people, David was king, judge, and general, but to the nations round about, he was the leading power in all the Near Eastern world, the mightiest monarchy of the day. David did what no one else was able to do prior. He transitioned a tribal nomadic people and he converted them into, in that day and age, the world's superpower. He also brought peace to his own land, brought wealth they had never before recognized. In fact, he, if you understand this, he had a son named Solomon who ended up elevating to the degree of power and wealth that is, is unrivaled in ancient history. He laid the foundation for this. But probably what's most significant is that David ended up elevating the priesthood and elevating Judaism, the, the, the worship of God, so that it could be expressed freely and openly without shame and without any sense of persecution. There was this sense of freedom that was able to pervade the land. David was able to do this. These were his successes and these were his accomplishments. They were magnificent, marvelous for his day. And as great as they were, hundreds of years later, an, an Israeli 
historian would write a psalm recounting the steps and the history of Israel, and they would come to the point of defining David. How would they summarize David's legacy is what they would do. And if you could hear this, this is extremely significant because, listen, the most vulnerable to history are those who are no longer around to change it. There is no need to say what was said if it was not true. How do they define David? In Psalm 78, this is what they say. This is a summary of his life. He chose David his servant, he being God, and took him from the sheepfolds, a sheep herder. And from following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. You know what they're saying here? David, he was a great man and a great king. They don't speak of any of his accomplishments. You know what they speak of? The quality of his leadership. You know how they describe it? How do we describe it? It's like a shepherd taking care of his sheep. He cared for us the way a shepherd cares for the defenseless sheep. He led us the way a shepherd leads the sheep. He provided for us. He protected us. He genuinely loved us. That's his legacy. That is what makes the most impact in history for us, is what he said. He loved us. He used his power and his resource to love us like a shepherd loves his sheep. And then in verse 72, we're told, with upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. Upright heart would be something we would define as, if we could say it this way, his soul was in right order. And the substance of the man within was healthy. Now, David, David was a man with tremendous flaws and weaknesses. David was a man with tragic failures, with high degrees of dysfunction. And yet, given that, and given all the successes he had, the prevailing word of his legacy was what? Something of his soul was beautiful. It was right. And he cared for us genuinely cared for us. And he did it skillfully. That was his legacy. That is, by the way, how he is still to this day remembered. One of the greatest kings Israel ever had. Which in itself is worth our admiration. But I would like for us to consider just several thoughts for how this may provide us of a model for our own lives. And it's going to kind of change things a little bit of how we may see this. And I just want to put this first thought on the board that really what we see here is that David was a forerunner of the one who shepherds us. I'd like to suggest that David's life was far more significant than just simply all the legendary things he did, but that he, at his best, was an arrow pointing to the one who shepherds us. To, if we could hear it this way, the true shepherd the true caregiver, the true doctor who cares for us. What would this look like? Well, Jesus, hundreds of years later, would step into human history, and one of the ways he would define himself is, is this way. I asked him to put this up there in John 10, 11. He steps onto the scene and he says, listen, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. Now, here's the thing. When Jesus says good, how do I say this? It's really good. 
You know why it's really good? Because at one point, somebody came up to him. If we just leave this verse up there. But somebody came up to him and said, good teacher, and asked him a question. And Jesus kind of confronted that word. He says, I'm not so sure you know what that means. Because here's the thing. Why do you call me good? For only God is good. You know what? Jesus basically said, only God deserves the definition of good. So, when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, he doesn't use hyperbole, right? He doesn't exaggerate or embellish. But to translate to today's culture, you know what he's saying? I am the greatest shepherd. I am the best shepherd. There is no other. I am the true shepherd. And you know how good is defined, he says? The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The good shepherd sacrifices himself on behalf of those who are defenseless. That's, he says, that's how you define it. And he, this word that he spoke, he stepped into courageously, displaying on the cross love in all its glory. And on the other side, three days later, death itself could not hold him. Life prevailed, which meant that everything Jesus said prior to this that moment in history gained credibility and everything he did gained weight that has not been rivaled before or since then. Jesus is the culmination, the destination of what David pointed to. Can you see it? If we could just carry this out, feather it out just a little bit more. David steps into Jerusalem and secures a city that was not able to be secured with peace. By the way, today is still having a challenging time, having peace in its land. But for his lifetime, for his monarchy, peace prevailed. You know what the truth is? And when we embrace Jesus as the king of our lives, you know what happens? What nothing else has been able to do is now possible. Peace is able to enter our hearts and settle the internal land of turmoil within us. He is able to do this. David defended his people. David was the one who secured the walls around the nation of Israel. And you know what happens? We have an accuser. We have an accuser within us. We have what the scriptures say, an adversary of our soul who is bent on shaming and condemning. And Jesus becomes the one who defends us. He is the one who justifies. We can never meet the accusations because sometimes they're so true. And yet Jesus steps in and he says, as true as it might be, my name now prevails over that life. And I defend, I defend against this shame. And I break this power over that person's life. You see it. Jesus becomes the fulfillment of anything David points towards. Jesus becomes the one who meets the cry of something we desire, which is what? To know we are worth something. And how does he demonstrate that we are worth something? By saying, you are worth my very blood. My own life is the price I will pay to purchase you. It's unbelievable. He meets the longing within us to be satisfied and fulfilled. How? He says, I am the bread of life that will satisfy your soul. He speaks to a woman in the middle of the day, in the hottest part of the day, when she is exiled from her own people, looking for satisfaction everywhere else. And he says to her, listen, you're here trying to draw water. But if you knew who I was, you would ask me. And I would give you water that would satisfy the thirst in your soul. He meets this cry for fulfillment. He meets the cry of productivity. We all want 
want to know our lives produce something that lasts. And you know what he does? He says, I am the true vine, that if you connect yourself to me, I will make your life fruitful. And I will make it fruitful in a way that it will last. It will not be insignificant. This is the one David points towards. He meets the cry of despair. He meets the cry of despair because his, his resurrection means that no darkness and no pain and no brokenness and no injustice in our world is able to prevail on God's goodness. If death could not hold him, then our past, our weaknesses, our habits, our proclivities, whatever we may think is actually saying, that disqualifies me. No, actually, Life prevails when Jesus is embraced as the king of our soul. Do you see it? It's beautiful. And if that is what David points towards, David models something else. David models that a thriving life with God, a thriving life with God requires the work of tending to our soul. A thriving life with God requires God requires us to do the work of tending to our soul. How was David defined? David was defined as a man who was upright in heart. His soul was in order. And he experienced something of God's hand on his life. Now, just so we understand, a thriving life of God does not mean that we will become wealthy. It doesn't mean that we will no longer suffer illnesses and sickness. It doesn't mean that we will have now a pain-free existence of ease and comfort. It doesn't mean that. A thriving life with God means that what happens is that when we become open, we start to experience God's blessing in our lives, his presence, his touch in our soul. We start to experience something of the transformational work within us that transcends circumstances or situations. And we could be we could be in the wealthiest part of the wealthiest nation and still be poor of spirit. And yet he is able to speak real wealth into our soul. We could be in a, a very difficult situation where nothing is going our way. And we could be rich with the knowledge that we are loved, that the circumstances does not define us, that our past need not define where our future is headed. That is what it looks like to thrive with God. And that means we have to do the work of aligning our soul to what he says is best. So what does that mean? What does that look like for us? Well, it means it requires us to look within, to do what is, what is required. See, David's courage didn't show up on the battlefield. David's courage didn't show up on the bears and lions. It didn't show up against Goliath. You know where it showed up? Where it was birthed, and it was demonstrated to everyone else. It was birthed when no one else was watching, and he looked into the depths of himself, and he asked God to help him wrestle and align everything within with what God says is best. So I asked him to put this up there just as an illustration. Our inner world, if we could just categorize it, it might look like our values, our thoughts, our affections, our actions. And if we're honest, each one kind of points in a different direction. Does it not? It's why sometimes 
We might be kind all the while thinking unkind things. Now, if you've ever been there. We might be loving all the while not really having the desire or the passion or the affection of it. We might do the polite thing. Why? Why? Because you, you ever have good intentions and yet actions don't line up? Uh, we, our, or our soul is in need of ordering. And this is, here's the thing. You know what we oftentimes do? And oftentimes we mistakenly do. We focus on actions. And we think, you know what? If we could just align our actions with what God says is best. Because why? That's what everyone else sees. And so we think, if we could just align our behavior to line up with what God says is right, then we'll be good. And here's the deal. If that's the case, actually something, something happens. We can do the right things for the wrong reasons. And what happens is a growing disconnect builds because our internal life is not actually being transformed to line up. And something of a disunity, inconsistency starts to show up and leak everywhere we go. And that life, the life of just focusing on our actions, can you hear this? That life is a life of much travail and energy that is expended. And we get home and we take off our guard and our masks and we are exhausted. But if we focus on what God says is worth our value, and we say, you know what, let's line up our values to sink as much as possible to what he says is most valuable. That will inform our thoughts, which will, will transform our thought patterns. And we will start to thinking of what is true and what is good, and what is pure and what is excellent and what is worthy. And we will start say, seeing that, that our thought patterns, our way of interpreting the world around us will affect our affections, which will then translate into actions that are in sync with what God is wanting to do in our lives. We find real confidence when our soul is tended to. Can you see it? What would that look like? What are the values God may want us to address? What are the thought patterns he may want to address? What affections is he saying? Let's reorient this. That will actually lead to action that represents him. Because at the end of the day, what David shows us is despite our weaknesses, our brokenness, our inconsistencies, God longs, and is our final thought, longs to give us a legacy worth celebrating. That is God's heart for us. That anytime we embrace him in our lives, he, he, now, he now signs us up to a life, a track record that is new, a way of existing that is brand new, that is meant to do what? Meant to leave a wake that when others look back upon our lives long after we are around, they will say, man, what a beautiful life. What a beautiful life God built through that person. And before, lest we think this is just hyperbole or nice, positive, optimistic thinking. Paul wrote to the believers in Ephesus, and this is what he said. I want you to redefine how you look at yourself. He says, we are God's masterpiece. We are God's masterpiece. Your identity is not your weakness. It is not your brokenness. It is not the things we are ashamed of. That's what he's saying. This is what he's saying. Our identity 
is not in what we cannot do or what we can do. It's, it's not in our successes or our wealth or our education, no. It's in the fact that God looks at us and he sees a work of art. And we invite him into our lives. He says he has created us anew in Christ Jesus. So he can do good things. Look, so we can do good things. He planned for us long ago. He invites us into this life in which when we roll up our sleeves and team up with him, he starts molding and shaping like a painter or a sculptor or a, a, a man who works on a clay vessel. And he creates a masterpiece. May we, may we receive that word over us. He longs to make you and me into beautiful reflections of his artistry. And he, he has a specific person, people, groups, environments, good things. And if we embrace them, we step into them. And we might think, oh, this is so insignificant. No one notices. Or we might think, gosh, this is so painful. This is really hard, God. But when we step into these good things, it ends up leaving awake. Awake that others start to recognize, no, this is not any ordinary life. God did something beautiful. It's a legacy worth celebrating. May we embrace it. May we receive that word. May we recognize he calls us beautiful in his eyes. In a moment, we receive our time of giving, closing song, reminding us of this. We are his masterpieces. He longs to give us a legacy worth celebrating. May that be true for us. I'd like to pray, ask for his blessing, sharing this together. Lord, just thank you. We thank you, God, that you are not just the great shepherd, you are the great physician who mends us, heals us. You are the great potter who seals the cracks. You are the one who longs to do something marvelous in us and through us. And we confess, God, that too often we look at our weaknesses, our brokenness and imperfections, and we allow that to dominate what we see in the mirror. I pray, God, that you would help us start to see your hand in our lives. And we would start to see your name over our heart. And we would start to recognize that our identity is founded in your love demonstrated for us. And we would start to receive strength to bring our soul into order so that the wake we leave behind is a wake, is a legacy worth celebrating. May you do your beautiful work among us, God. May you receive all the credit and glory for it. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.